This is Rabbi Francis Nataf. Welcome to my podcast series. This is episode number 10. We've hit the number 10, and we're looking forward to many more in this podcast series. I want to speak about a reaction I had from one of my listeners. One of the wonderful things about doing this type of thing, whether it's writing or whether it's recording, is the response of people who are interested. And this particular listener let me know that he felt the climate of intolerance echoing into my podcast. Not that I was being intolerant, but rather he felt that I was being very equivocating, uh, hedging myself and making sure not to offend anyone. And this is a wonderful way to move into this, uh, this week's podcast because I'm going to say something rather unpopular and not politically correct. Now, before I do that, I want to explore some of the background to what he was saying and what's going on more generally in our culture. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar, but the New York Times covered, many other outlets covered as well, a wonderful letter that was put out in Harper's this week and uh, actually last week. Um, And that letter was from a large group of intellectuals and artists who were protesting the growing uh, atmosphere of intolerance. Uh, And these were people who uh, are among the community of people who are guilty of this intolerance, and essentially they were uh, correcting their peers, if not for taking part in the intolerance, but giving into it. And therefore, I spoke about it, uh, wrote about it on Facebook. There's a little debate. Any of you who are on Facebook are invited to follow a discussion, follow me more generally. It's a fascinating discussion. I just want to quote one line because it's exactly what my listener was saying about my podcast. Uh, he was saying, the, the letter uh, says as follows, we, will, we are already paying the price in, rate, in greater risk aversion among writers, artists, and journalists who fear for their livelihoods if they depart from the consensus or even lack sufficient zeal in agreement, right? There's a certain position that everybody has to agree to that's politically correct. And um, if you depart from it, therefore you will be not only uh, strongly censored, but you will be threatened economically as well. Um, Well, the truth is, I've always tried to be very careful, both in not overstating a position as well as uh, trying not to offend people unnecessarily. I explained to the listener that I didn't want people to get distracted by issues that weren't central to the podcast. In the same way, when I write an article, I've learned the hard way that people often get distracted by the wrong part of the article. And therefore, there is that. However, uh, both the listener and the authors of this letter and Harper's have a tremendously important point to make, and that is that all of us who are trying to write 
to a greater audience that extends beyond our own echo chamber, uh, that exp ex expands to people uh, both to our right and to our left and who agree with us. Obviously, that's the easy part to, to speak to the people that agree with you on some level is not so important because they already agree with you. In the, in the context of trying to change opinion, trying to educate, then one is trying to speak to people of differing opinions, of less uh, people have less information, what have you. Uh, there is a need to reach out to uh, people who disagree, obviously, and that entails uh, saying things that may upset them sometimes. And uh, the question is, how is that, what's the reaction when people get upset with an opinion these days? And unfortunately, there's a growing climate of intolerance such that a person like myself, or like anybody, uh, as was mentioned here, is... Uh, averse to taking risk because we know that it's very easy for a person's reputation to be ruined by a social media lynch mob. Um, and all one has to do is, is to look at some of the talkbacks and uh, any article that takes the position. And when we'll see the type of uh, fierce language that's thrown around and that can snowball into something very unpleasant, uh, with uh, with with real uh, with real world consequences. So that's by way of introduction. Uh, what am I going to say that's unpopular? So I'm going to say that the, this week's parsha in the Torah and actually in many places in the Torah comes to deny that which has become enshrined and famous in the United States Declaration of Independence a phrase much beloved by many people, and that's why it's unpopular, because I'm going to uh, debunk this phrase. Um, and that phrase is that all men are created equal. And this is actually prefaced with an even more unfortunate phrase for those of us who are uh, critically inclined the idea that something can be self-evident, right? It's introduced by the, the idea that every that this idea is so obvious that it's self-evident. Well, in fact, it has been criticized for uh, all sorts of reasons, as well as hailed, obviously. People uh, have good reason to uh, love this phrase. And on some level, there is some truth to it in the sense that um, we have in the Mishnah that all men are created in the image of God, and therefore, on a very basic level, the idea is correct. To the extent that the founding fathers, and particularly Thomas Jefferson, was referring to this, then there is some truth to this. And certainly, uh, the idea was coming from, uh, as far as most of the founding fathers are concerned, a certain religious perspective about uh, the creation of man. Uh, be that as it may, uh, more critically analyzed, one will see that in fact, um, an American philosopher, uh, quoting someone earlier than him in, in the antebellum South, uh, the philosopher Richard M. Weaver, uh, pointed out that if one looks at it uh, more critically, one would realize that in fact, 
no two men were ever created equal. Um, I write in this week's Parsha article that we all are born to different gene pools, and some people are born uh, with handicaps, with physical handicaps. Some people are born with terrible mental handicaps. Uh, some people are born with tremendous advantage, be it the family to who they're born to, uh, be it the strength that they're uh, inheriting. Whatever it is, uh, the fact is that society has to, a mature society that is looking to address man as he is, mankind as we are, will understand that in fact there is really no such thing as equality. And I would say that this notion of equality is really a modern myth. On the contrary, what society, a healthy society needs to do is both to make up to some extent for the inequalities. In other words, by acknowledging inequality, by acknowledging that a blind person is at a disadvantage, we realize that we have an obligation to give them more of a break in certain ways, to do more for them than we would for someone else. And as the Torah mentioned over and over again, the notion that we must go out of our way to help the widow or the orphan, uh, spe specifically because they are at a handicap on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, people at different levels of education need to be addressed differently. Uh, people at different spiritual levels also need to be addressed according to where they are. And this fits into this week's Parsha, I think, in a very significant and important way. The Parsha, which you can find, as always, on Jewish Press, you can find it in all sorts of other places, just Google it. Uh, Google my name, Google the Parsha, uh, it's very easy. In any case, the laws of Nidarim, of vows, are given over to the tribal leaders. Now, why that is, um, is a big question among the commentators, given that we don't have any other laws like that, and given that Ostensibly, there's really no connection between tribes or tribal leaders and this law. This law seems like many, many other laws that appear in the Torah. So why should it be addressed specifically to the leaders? That's one issue. Another issue that is raised in the Talmud is a related law, not the law of, uh, of um, Nidarim, of making vows itself, but rather the laws of repealing vows, which we, many of us know from the ritual that Jews uh, go through uh, right before the high holidays, before Shana, before Yom Kippur, of repealing vows in a very general way. But that law of repealing vows is almost not found at all in the written Torah. Uh, there are only hints to it. Uh, these two issues actually point to the same thing, that the Torah is trying to hide both the entire notion of vows as well as the idea that a vow can be easily uh, repealed uh, is something that the 
Torah is trying to hide from the masses. Now, and you can read more about this, let's say in my essay, but essentially the idea is that there are many people who are not on an educational or spiritual level to handle this law properly. And therefore, they will think that words are cheap, they'll make vows indiscriminately and get themselves into trouble, all the more so if they know that the vow can be easily repealed. And therefore, the Torah, while trying to give access to everyone to find out about this law, also does its piece in hiding the law, knowing that, in fact, people are not equal and that some people will derive great benefit from this law, while others will get themselves into tremendous trouble as a result of this law. So by acknowledging the differences in our society, what the Torah is doing is actually making the Torah fit all people, each person according to his or her need. And that is a, is, is a more mature and nuanced approach than the modern myth of equality that is misused and misunderstood that gets us into a great deal of trouble. So I've said it, been unpopular. We'll see how much trouble I get into. And in the meantime, I want to wish everyone a good week. And we'll speak to you again in two weeks' time. Don't forget to be listening for this podcast series every other week and to follow me on the Redeeming Relevance series in print, as well as following me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all sorts of ways to be in touch. Look forward to keeping open the conversation.